Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, shut in here at home in Pennsylvania. I'm here this week with John Mitchell, shut in at home there in Alabama. Uh, we're going to be uh, starting this week's podcast uh, with what's on everybody's mind right now. Uh, the coronavirus and how it's going to affect college football moving forward. Obviously, that's not the primary concern. Uh, the health and well-being of everybody is is the primary concern, but... With sports, you know, not in existence really right now, all we can do is speculate and wonder what's going to happen in the future. And since we're a college football podcast, let's speculate a bit. Uh, In our second segment, we're going to move on. And we mentioned last week uh, Dante Pryor's uh, article about the top 10 coaches that have never won a national title. Uh, in the modern era. And, you know, I thought it was a great article. It was really fascinating. Uh, In our second segment, we'll go into some of the, you know, uh, things that we thought that belonged on his list, some of the things we thought were a pleasant surprise, maybe some overreaches we thought he might have had. You know, just kind of critique the list. And then in our last segment, we'll, you know, make asses of ourselves and say, what's our top five list? So, uh, you know, put ourselves on the line just to kind of close it out and give everybody something to chew on as we're all sitting here at home. And speaking of sitting at home, John, how are you doing down there? Are you in good health? Uh, So far, so good from that standpoint. Just already getting a bit stir-crazy. I feel like this has probably been the... The longest week of my life at this point. I remember seeing, uh, I think a few days ago, someone saying that a week ago, or it's been, I guess, two weeks now, the NBA shut down. I was like, man, it's only been that long? It feels like someone could have told me, Zach, that it's May 11th today, and I probably would have believed them. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing how time sort of simultaneously just ticks along without us really noticing it. And at the same time, it feels like it's going oh so slowly. And that's, you know, for me, uh, this honestly didn't change much. I was on spring break, and unlike all the kids going down to Florida and, uh, you know, becoming cute little vectors running all across the country, you know, once spring break's over, I I hunkered down here at home. You know, we already... We're starting to sort of get these rumblings that we might not be going back to campus once spring break was over. And uh, so, you know, I I just stayed at home and uh, got to play with the dog a bit. That was awesome. And then, you know, we got the call that we were going to have to stay on or stay off campus. And it honestly didn't change much for me. You know, I'd been working a little bit here and there on break and reading a little, and, you know, I I had to ramp up what I was doing at home, but I, I, you know, as somebody who writes a lot, uh, being at home and working is a fairly familiar thing for me. You know, my biggest concern are those people who can't work at home, 
obviously, you know, if I was in kitchen still, I wouldn't be able to work from home by any means. And I know that's something that's definitely on your mind as well. So. No, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's terrifying times. It's, it, the thing that I always come back to is that as a country and as a people, we're all in this together because we're all going through something, whether directly or indirectly, we know someone who's having to deal with with everything that's going on and whatnot. And, you know, obviously on the podcast, we try to take it from an angle of college football because that's what this podcast is about. But there's also the, the human aspect of it that, you know, we try not to make light of. And, you know, we, we, we joke around and we try to talk about some other things, but obviously this is the thing that's most pressing on everyone's mind is how this is so deeply affecting so many people right now and you know you've got the people who are affected by it directly from illness and you have the long-term impacts of the the economical impact on the country and everything from so many people whose jobs are either in limbo or they're having to file for unemployment and stuff like that it's just a really scary time for everyone out there so hopefully also this podcast can kind of help to take people's minds off of that if not for any amount of time, like, you know, any, anything you can do, I think, to distract yourself from the current landscape of what's going on in the country is a really good thing. So I, I really enjoy getting to talk to you every week, Zach, because that's kind of a period of time where I can kind of let my personal fears of everything go. and We can just kind of kick back and, and talk about this sport, even, even as it relates to COVID-19 and everything like that, even that will at least distract me from my own current circumstances. Certainly. And you know, that's the thing is people talk about sports wanting to be a release from real life. And the thing is, is the, you know, the, the topics we talk about show that it is deeply intertwined with real life. The fact that we don't have sports right now has thrown life for a tailspin, especially at a point when people would be watching them more than ever being stuck at home. And, you know, I mean, people say keep politics out of sports. It's always there. The fact that sports leagues, you know, decided to shut down, uh, you know, I'll drift, I'll stay in sports, but I'm going to drift a little bit away from college football for a second. You know, the IOC, they finally came out and said that they... Uh, we're going to be postponing the Olympics in Tokyo until 2021, but it really took a lot of feet dragging. It took the USA track and field coming out with a really stern letter, uh, effectively saying that they weren't approving of their athletes going in this situation. And then, uh, Canada and then Australia saying completely that they wouldn't participate if it wasn't postponed. Uh, so I think that was really critical, but, you know, we've seen the feet dragging there and, uh, you know, college football kind of got ahead of the curve in terms of the way spring practice was, were shut down. And that was partially the way campuses have been handled more broadly across the country. And so in that vein, I kind of want to turn this to college football a bit because, you know, coronavirus is impacting everybody, the way that it's cycling around the country, the way it's cycling around the globe. And, you know, college football players aren't immune from this. College football coaches aren't immune from this. Staffs aren't immune. 
you know, the people who work concessions at the stadium aren't immune. The people who bring in tickets at the, the gate aren't immune. The fans that fill those seats aren't immune. It, it, it This affects everybody. Um, you know, we're well over 50,000 confirmed cases in the United States right now at the, at the time this podcast is going live. And, you know, f- it, that's something we need to keep in mind. And even if you're not personally, you know tested positive, even if you never contract the illness, um, it will have its impacts. And I think one, especially for college football athletes, um, you know, the fact that they have to be students in the classroom. And oftentimes spring term is your chance to catch up on credits, your chance to boost up your GPA heading into you know, some of your busy, your fall was obviously your busier term. So you want, you know, you, you backload your, your schedule. And one thing that I've been wondering about as somebody who's both taking classes online now as a graduate student and, you know, having to assist with moving the classroom to a remote delivery system, you know, as a teaching assistant for a class uh, you know, I'm really starting to wonder how this could affect things like player eligibility, you know, because you do have minimum GPA requirements that you have to continue playing. And we see a lot of colleges moving to pass fail grades for this. And that doesn't count toward GPA at most schools. And if it does, it's going to count as a 2.0 usually because it counts as a C. And so that could be really interesting in terms of players who might be on that margin of eligibility and how this might affect GPA moving forward. Um, so, you know, in all my, my swirl of thinking of different things, that's one thing that's been on my mind. And, I, I, you know, I, I've kind of been itching to get on the podcast with you today and, and get your thoughts on, on how this might impact teams. Yeah, I mean, it's it certainly, it's crazy how fluid, I guess, the whole situation is, because it feels like even one week after we talked last about it, and we discussed what could potentially happen if the college football season is affected by the virus, by this virus that's going around and everything, and, you know, last week it felt hypothetical, and this week it feels a lot more real. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's amazing that one week later, that's, that's where we are, that it feels this different because, you know, we could go, like I said, we talked about the hypothetical sense and it really didn't feel, I, I guess, didn't take it to the point that I felt like the season could ultimately be impacted the way. But I mean, I've been reading stuff all week too, Zach, about people talking about, Hey, what happens, you know, if it is, let's start making plans for the season to be affected. Yeah. Because the thing about college football is you can't just go start playing games. There has to be time to prepare in terms of the physical impact that the sport has. You know, teams have to be able to train. They have to be able to practice from a, you know, a, a player safety standpoint to get to the point that they're ready to play games. So we're vastly approaching the potential for that to happen and for them having to play an abbreviated season. This year, which is, you know, I think something that a lot of people 
would be shocked to hear, but that a lot of smarter people than me have been talking about that for the last couple of, or last week or so at this point, and it all just feels a lot more real. Um, and I, you know, I really hope that everybody's taking this seriously the way they should be and social distancing and stuff, because the more that we're able to social distance, you know, the quicker all of this will be over and that we can return to normalcy. The longer it takes for people to accept the reality of our current situation, the longer this drags out, the more potential there is for this sport that we know and we love so much to be deeply affected by it and for the potential that even the season is doesn't even go on, which well, would be yeah. horrifying to think about. It, it certainly would, and, you know, I wrote about this recently. This was what I wrote about in the Sunday Morning Quarterback this week, is how this could look similar to what we saw in 1918 with the Spanish flu epidemic. And, uh, you know, essentially, the issue with the virus is that it ramped up a second time after it was first found in the spring... You know, this story is going to sound really familiar and almost sound like, you know, Nostradamus-type crap that I'm spewing. But, you know, if you listen to this six months down the line, but it wouldn't shock me at all. Because what happened in 1918 is you have this, you know, build up through the, the late winter and spring. You have a tapering off for a couple of months. You start seeing it pop up in small pockets in August into September, back then the college football season started in October, you know, this was a time when they were playing eight, nine game seasons, so most schools started that first week of October, got done at, you know, Thanksgiving, and, you know, it ravaged teams, it, you know, it took out major players, the entire Missouri Valley Football Conference not the one you know now with the one double A level, but the one that became the big eight, uh, completely canceled games. Didn't play games that season. The entire conference shut down. Uh, 20% of all teams at the top division of college football shut down. I mean, back then it was just college football. But, you know, 20% of teams shut down. The ones that continued playing went from playing an average of eight, it was like eight and a half, so either eight or nine games in the 1917 season to an average of five games the next year. So they cut it down in half. And, you know, games got canceled both early and late throughout the season as, you know, teams couldn't field rosters because their players were getting sick. And that's the other thing we need to think about. You know, I mentioned, you know, players might have eligibility issues, and that's the ones that stay healthy and, and have been on that cusp. You know, they're definitely going to be players before all is said and done that come down with this, and it, I imagine at least a couple that have complications, it, you know, whether it's at the Division One, you know, FBS or FCS level. I, it, it, Mark, we're going to see it happen. I mean, the way it goes through a population, we're starting to see senators come down with it, you know? Um, and you know, I, I imagine at least one coach. And the thing is, is coaches, uh, head coaches in college football, 
generally tend to skew older. So it puts them in a demographic where, you know, what happens when we see a college football coach die from this? Like, how, how does that impact an entire team for a year? You know, these are the kind of things we need to start thinking about that could potentially happen. And, you know, one thing, you know, and that really requires, you know, as you mentioned, we're really, you know, people are staying inside, going out as little as possible, distancing, practicing the best possible hygiene and sanitation techniques, um, you know, doing everything they can to flatten this curve and make sure that until, you know, some kind of vaccine is discovered, we're not you know, overwhelming hospital capacity. Because that's really what flattening the curve is all about. You know, you really want to hammer that curve down and then you want to ride it, you know? You imagine there is going to be some illness that goes through and you don't want to override hospital capacity because, one, you want to keep some open for the fact that people aren't just going to be coming sick with this. You've got people who deal with other things all the time. There are accidents, there are... There are heart attacks still, you know, life happens beyond this as well. And, um, you know, that's really what we're looking for. And the fact is, if you don't overwhelm the capacity, even if people are getting sick, you've got the equipment to keep them alive and get them through it to the other side. So that's really the concern. And I think people, you know, still in a lot of ways, I mentioned spring breakers earlier but the fact that senators are still, you know, um, have their gym open and their, their, you know, their pool and all of this stuff for each other to commingle and, you know, um, you know, become vectors for one another. That's irresponsible. You know, college football, if anything, has taken the lead over some of these institutions But I saw a recent article a couple of days ago by Dan Wolken at USA Today that I thought was an interesting sort of take on this. He was basically saying that football coaches should use their platform as, you know, public figures and people in the public trust to inform everybody out there of the risks of the coronavirus and and of COVID-19 and to tell them to take it seriously because, you know, People don't necessarily want to listen to their politicians telling them this. Um, Some people, you know, celebrities, movie stars, whatnot, that does the trick. But, you know, if there's some of the most respected people in the country or your local college football coach or some of these big-time college football coaches, I mean, you put together a PSA with Nick Saban and Davo Sweeney and, you know, like Chris Peterson, even, you know, Urban Meyer, some of these current and former coaches come together and put out a PSA. I bet more people take that seriously than than would, you know, take anybody else seriously for that matter. Who don't you trust more than the co- head coach, you know? Um, so I was just wondering, do you think coaches should be doing this? And you know, should they speak up more to influence the public? And do you think even as, you know, oftentimes the highest paid official in their state, they might even have a responsibility to take this upon their shoulders? 
No, I, I absolutely do. I, I think a lot of coaches try to toe the political line as much as possible so as to not alienate a piece of their fan base. But when it comes to something like this that completely transcends party affiliation and everything like that, I do think there's kind of a moral responsibility. Because if you had a guy like a Nick Saban or like a Dabo Sweeney or someone like that who came out and told people this, I think a lot, like you said, a lot more people would take it seriously particularly if they mention the fact that this is something, at least in the South, based on the, the football-crazed population down here, that if they understand that this is something that could genuinely impact the college football season, I think people would take the social distancing more. They'd avoid going out, hanging out with friends, or going to the beach on spring break and stuff like that. Because of that, I, I don't think there's. I think there's a, a vast majority of people who don't really think that there's any chance that the college football season could be effective anyway. Because you know we haven't quite flipped to April at this point. It still feels like football so far away. But if you had some of these coaches who came out, I think and did that, then yeah, I think absolutely that would be um, a huge boost to the cause of getting people to take um, the coronavirus seriously and getting people to really understand that that the again like i said earlier the longer that we avoid doing the things that the cdc is recommending then the longer this is going to drag out and the more things that we're going to lose and have taken away from us that we enjoy because i mean i mean my goodness everyone out there right now is probably going crazy not being able to flip it on the espn and watch a random basketball game right now uh, to take your mind off of having to watch consistent replays or, or random sporting events from whenever. I mean, and like I said in, in the in the beginning, you know, it just it felt like about the longest week to two weeks of my life. Just there's so much that we use sports for, particularly the, you know, a big thing we use sports for is to avoid the real world, right? To distract ourselves from everything that's going on. And this is one of those rare events that has ripped sports away from us. We don't have any other way of coping other than trying to attack this and deal with it head on and discuss it and all that, you know? So it's tough. It's tough coming home um, for me, coming home from work and, and wanting to flip on a, a random ball game just to have all this background while you're being nothing, nothing yeah. at all to flip on, you know? And I can't imagine this continuously dragging out for months and months and months because I mean, like I said, we're a week and a half to two weeks into this. It's already been pretty miserable. Yeah, definitely. Well, on that note, before we go to our first break, I've got to throw this one last question at you. If you had to put a percentage on how confident you are that we'll have a full, normal college football season next year, what percentage would that be right now? If you would asked me this last, I would have probably been around 75 uh, one week later, I'm probably around 40 to 45. It's it's taken that big of a dive for me. I, I Maybe it's just negativity on my part, but from the people that I've seen talking about it who are more informed on this kind of subject than me, I, I'm down probably below 50%, and I think this college football season is going to plunge to that normal. Yeah, you know, I definitely am below half there. I was kind of, I've been waffling on what percentage I would put on it, but... You know, I'll throw my lucky number 37 out there 
as the personage, I think. I think it's got a three in eight chance of being a completely normal season without any hiccups that happen with a resumption of this virus or issues with, you know, to players themselves or whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I think that I, we're kind of on that same page, and I think, you know, confidence is waning for a lot of people across the country, and, you know, this is a very sobering reality. On that note, sorry to leave you all on a dour space, but let's take a quick break to just kind of soak this all in. Um, I know I'm not a college football coach, but, you know, hopefully you'll heed my advice. Stay inside. We'll be back real soon to, to come right back and talk some more. Welcome back from our first break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. John and I are here this week talking from our, uh, you know, imposed isolations uh, here in Pennsylvania and Alabama, respectively, hunkered down in uh, our our part towards social distancing and flattening this curve of the coronavirus spread. Um, you know, last segment we talked about that a bit and, you know, continuing to look at how this might impact next season. But we want to turn our attention now to something that came up on the website recently. And we alluded to this last week. It popped up like right when we were going to publication. So we didn't have much time to talk about it then. But Dante Pryor at, at, at Saturday Blitz recently put out a great article um, looking at his list of the top 10 coaches in the modern era of college football who never won a national title. And I'm just going to walk you through this list quickly. Um, so if you haven't read it yet, this is a quick spoiler alert. Uh, you might want to turn this off for the next, you know, 15 seconds or so. But his list was number one, Bo Schembechler. Two, Hayden Fry. Three, Frank Beamer. Four was Barry Alvarez. Five, Gary Patterson. Sixth was Chris Peterson. At seven, he had John Cooper. Eight was Pat Dye. Nine was Chip Kelly. And at 10, he had Mike Gundy. So what we're going to look at in this segment is, you know, let's go over this list. Um, I, I hope you've had some time to look at it as well, John. But I thought it was a really interesting take. I certainly didn't agree with everything that Dante put out there uh but, you know, I thought it was an arguable list. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think there's several really good on there. There was a couple things that, you know, I I disagreed with and whatnot. But, I mean, I think any time you open up a list like this, it's going to be subjective to how you view certain coaches. So I always commend those who are willing to put, you know, pen to paper and to put their name attached to a list like this because no one's ever going to read something like this and be like, oh yeah, 10 for 10. I 100% agree. It's going to cause dissension in the ranks. And, you know, it, it's it's good evergreen content this type of year to get people talking. And honestly, anything to kind of distract myself right now from our present circumstances, I'm totally good with. So, no, I, I really enjoyed the, the article as a whole and all of that as well. I think he had some several several really good points a lot of really talented coaches. 
I mean, definitely, every one of these guys is a spectacular head coach. You know, you can't, you can't dismiss that fact. So even if you don't necessarily agree with every one of his picks on here, I, I think it's a, a, you can make a valid argument for or against or for where they fall in the order. Um, but, you know, I thought there were also some, some interesting names I wouldn't have necessarily expected him to put on here. So I wanted to throw out to you what was... What was the most pleasant surprise you saw on the list? I I like the fact that he didn't neglect current head coaches because I think in a lot of lists, a lot of people always want to go with with people who've retired and whatnot. So I like the fact that I saw some names on there from coaches currently, like Gary Patterson, even Mike Gundy. Even though I don't know if Mike Gundy necessarily would have made my personal list. But I like the fact that a guy like Gary Patterson especially was on the list. Um, he would be even higher on my list, to be honest. Not to spoil what we're going to talk about later in that. But, you know, when you've got a guy in, in Gary Patterson, for instance, who has stayed at one school for as long as he has with TCU and has led them to so much success um, in different conferences. You know, you're talking about a guy who won a Conference USA title, won four Mountain West titles, and then a Big 12 title, leading TCU from non-automatic qualifier status into a Power 5 conference, and then being highly successful in that conference as well. So I, I like the fact that he didn't um, dismiss some current coaches who have had a lot of success and, could who, and who could even jump up even higher on the list as their career continues to progress. Or even fall off the list completely with a national title, which, you know, given their current situations, I'd honestly have to say I think Patterson is the one who has the best chance out of the current head coaches he listed to break through and do it. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, I loved that he had three guys who still could fall off the list on there because I think you know, you, you obviously said most times people look at this as retired coaches who miss their chance, which I think is an entirely valid approach. But, you know, if you're going to look at the entire modern era, don't discount some of these people who already have long resumes and have really innovated and done some incredible things. So, yeah, I also love to see Chip Kelly on there. He's one I'd kind of you know, I, I'd certainly consider for a top 10 list if I were going to put it on there, but I'm a duck. So obviously, you know, that kind of skews a bit as to, to how believable you make it when I do that. Cause I'd probably also consider Mike Bellotti for that, you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I also obviously as a, a Badgers fan, I loved seeing Barry Alvarez on there. And I think that was, was one that I wouldn't necessarily have put on my own list. So I think that was interesting to see, especially as high as number four, um, which leads me to my next question. Um, because I, I would say maybe Alvarez was a bit of an overreach, saying he was the fourth best never to get there. Um, I, I'd certainly say he, he's got top ten consideration, but that might have been a little bit too high for a guy who who had a couple of great Rose Bowl wins there, 
um, you know, ended up with some highly ranked teams, but they never were the kind of dominant Big Ten team you expect if you're going to see one competing for a national championship. So I'll throw it back to you. Which one do you think was the biggest overreach on this list? I'd probably agree with you that Barry Alvarez, to be honest. Also another Big Ten coach on the list, Hayden Fry at number two, was probably a bit of an overreach to me. Obviously both incredibly good head coaches for a long time. I mean, both won three Big Ten championships. Both had three consensus top ten finishes, which is nothing to sneeze at uh, for either coach, obviously. But I think when you look at the overall resumes of some of the other guys on the list, it's kind of hard, I think, to justify either of those guys maybe even being in the top five, in my opinion, when you look at some of the other people um, who he had outside of the, the top five who had, you know, better longevity and were able to have higher finishes and win more championships in their conference and whatnot. So I think both of those guys, to me, Alvarez is probably the one that stuck out the most initially, but also I think Hayden Fry at number two was probably a bit too high. I Hayden Fry certainly belongs in the top ten. I think an argument could be made that Alvarez could maybe sneak into the bottom of that list. I don't know if he necessarily would make mine. Uh, but I think both of those guys are probably a little bit too much. But I think you can certainly see the argument for why either would be included. But I think, in my personal opinion, I think they're both a little bit too high. I think that's fair. You know, um, as you said, Fry is a, an incredible coach who certainly has top 10 merit. Um, maybe sneaking into like a top six position even you know, into, into that sixth spot. Um, but yeah, top five is, is kind of hard. And, and second right behind Shem Beckler is really interesting. Um, and I don't even think Dante is an Iowa fan. So that's, that, you know, that's what really kind of, you know, kind of tipped it for me. Like he's definitely got respect for the guy and at, you know, Certainly well-deserved respect, but maybe a little too much in terms of that ranking. Uh, one other question I wanted to throw out to you before we, we take our second break, before we go into our final thoughts with our own coaches. Um, it You know, we're going to just be looking at a top five, but, it, you know, looking at his list, who's one coach that you would pluck out and who's the coach you would put back in there? I mean, I, I think the biggest omission when you look at that list is Bill Snyder not being on it. I, I I would probably have Bill Snyder as high, and we'll go over this again later, but I would have him in my top five, to be honest. So him not being top ten, I'm not sure if I could really agree with an argument for not having him in the top ten for what he was able to accomplish at a school like Kansas State. That I mean, we saw – when he left Kansas State for a few years and Ron Prince took over, how quickly that program fell from being a, a Big 12 contender back to the seller of the Big 12 for a few years. And then he came back and led them instantly back towards the top. So I think it'd be hard to justify, for me at least, not having him among the top 10. So I personally, I'd probably throw him in. If I had to remove one coach uh, from the list, I'd probably start near the bottom, which is probably good. Uh, for his list, I'd probably take out Mike Gundy at this point. 
Um, I, I think Gundy's got a, a good argument if he can get Oklahoma State back from kind of the mediocre years that we've seen the last few years from the Cowboys. If he can bounce back from that and lead them, you know, back towards Big Ten, Big Twelve contention, which is something we talked about earlier in, in previous editions of the podcast in recent weeks, that we think Oklahoma State could have a really good year in twenty twenty, pending that we have a twenty twenty season, of course, um, that the that the Pokes really have a shot at, at bouncing back. So I think he's got a shot to get there. I think it's maybe a bit premature to include him in the top ten, uh, particularly if you're leaving a guy like Bill Snyder out. Yeah, maybe Dante has a premonition about next season that we didn't know. You know, maybe we'll have to bring him on the podcast one of these weeks soon to sort of get his thought process even behind this. Um, you know, if I had to, to do the same, um, you know, as an Alabama fan, I don't think you'll cry if I was to pull out Pat Dye. Um, well, you know, I... For as great a career as he had, you know, four four SEC titles, and uh, but he never had an undefeated season where you just think like he has to be there. You know, he had the one season in nineteen eighty three where they ended up at number three in both major polls. Uh, you know, won the Sugar Bowl, uh, but in the end, it you know they beat a number eight Michigan team that year, nine, seven in that sugar bowl. So, you know, they finished number three. I think that was fair in, in that season, but you know, ultimately I, you know, I would pluck him out of that list. And one that I, you know, I think Bill Snyder's one year, you're absolutely right that he belongs this list, but I'm going to throw two names out there who I might throw into a top five, even, um, one old and one new. So one who's still coaching and one who's not. Um, the old is Ron Meyer at SMU. I think, you know, he had a short-lived career there. But I think, you know, that rocket flew high with the Pony Express. And I think they certainly had an argument for at least one national title during his time there in Dallas. Payroll or not, <laughs> they you know, um, and then the new this one um, certainly could be argued, but David Shaw at Stanford is one that I think you know Stanford has had a couple years there where the, you know where he was bouncing right back and forth with Chip Kelly for that that Pac-10 slash Pac-12 title and. You know, Stanford got snubbed a couple of times. They're, they certainly had an argument for the college football playoff the year they ended up playing Iowa in the Rose Bowl. And, you know, they certainly had arguments there all throughout his time there on the farm. So he's one I'd also throw in there as a potential. No, I, I you know, I didn't really think of Ron Meyer, so I love that you brought that up. That wasn't a name that immediately came to mind um, for me, so I think that's great. You know, another guy from current coaching that might be a surprise that I think has an argument for the top ten is probably Brian Kelly um, at Notre Dame, just with the level of success that he's had, particularly if you're the type of person who would count what he was able to do um, at the lower collegiate level at Grand Valley State. 
all the success he had there before moving up to Central Michigan and then moving to Cincinnati and leading Cincinnati to a top five finish in 2009 and now leading Notre Dame to, you know, a national championship appearance and a playoff appearance to go along with three other consensus top 12 finishes with the Irish. He's a guy who I think a lot of fans look at as overrated, but with the level of success he's had at Notre Dame, which, you know, not a lot of coaches have had that success with the Irish in recent years. So I think that's another name that I, I don't know if I'd put in the top 10, but he was a name that I certainly considered. I think that's a great, you know, sort of name to throw out there for sure. Uh, especially when you think about Brian Kelly's time at Cincinnati as well, because that 2009 team that you mentioned that ended up going to the Sugar Bowl, if we have the college football playoff season that year, they were ranked fourth in the final BCS standings and would probably have one of those spots as an undefeated Big East champion. And so, you know, he'd have his third chance at a national title there. And forget what happened to you know, against Florida in that Sugar Bowl, they would have deserved a spot in the discussion to at least get a chance at the title because, you know, what happens on one Saturday isn't necessarily going to happen on another or what one team is able to exploit isn't necessarily what another team is going to be able to exploit. So I think that's a great one to keep in mind as well. You know, the only caveat is, you know, do you count those uh, Division Two national championships against him as, as saying he actually had national championships already? True. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, that, that Cincinnati team in 2009 is probably a Texas game-winning field goal in the Big 12 title game against Nebraska for making the national title game to begin with it's, against Alabama that year. I mean, they were that close. Yeah, be, I'm, I'm sure they probably would have leapfrogged uh, into that picture at that point. Because, yeah, I think they were third in the BCS standings actually going in, and then TCU was fourth. So, yeah, they would have stayed ahead of TCU for sure uh, and, and been, the, been the team to get the whooping from Alabama. So... Yeah, I mean, that, and that probably changes our perception of Brian Kelly as a coach leading a a you know a non automatic qualifier back then to the national title. They were still an automatic qualifier to be fair in the Big East still then, but it it, it certainly felt like it. So right, it uh, would have been. I mean, it would have felt definitely like it's going to make a national title game. That would have been a humongous accomplishment at a school like Cincinnati. Yeah, it would have been far more astounding than, for instance, seeing Virginia Tech do it as a Big East team. Right. Or, heaven forbid, Miami when they were a Big East team. But, you know, Virginia Tech was a little bit more shocking come out coming out of there. And I think, you know, doing it at Cincinnati would have even been more shocking than when West Virginia had their push to, to be in the picture. So... Yeah, I agree with you. Brian Kelly's certainly another one on that list that he's in the pressure cooker, cooker of South Bend and playing in the shadow of touchdown Jesus. But he's a damn good coach. You know, you saw what he did at Central Michigan, what he did at, at Cincinnati, what he did at Notre Dame. And as you mentioned, even before that, at, at Division Two Grand Valley State, he was, he, he certainly has, has, a legitimate claim to throw his name into the hat. 
Yeah, and I mean, people, I think, hold too much against him that he lost in championship or playoff games against historically great teams. You know, that 2012 Alabama team they lost to in the title game was unbelievably good on both sides of the ball. And then, obviously, um, in 2019, losing to Cle- or 2018, losing to Clemson, and that team that went 15-0 and and also then blew out Alabama just as much as they blown out Notre Dame in semifinal. I mean, it, it's hard, I think, to hold that against them. I think he gets a bad rap because of that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's really just the bad luck of the draw in that instance. You know, like we mentioned, 9 being in the Big East, and then who he drew in terms of, you know, once he finally goes there against incredible Alabama and Clemson teams. On that note, let's take our quick break. I need to fill up the glass quickly. We will be right back uh, to offer you our respective top five coaches of the modern era who didn't win a national championship or haven't yet won a national championship in the case of if they're still coaching. So uh, heed our advice, stay hydrated, stay inside. We'll be right back soon. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell, and we are talking about coaches who haven't won national championships. We uh, went into our thoughts around our colleague at Saturday Blitz, Dante Pryor's recent top 10 list that he put out. Um, Coaches we were happy to see on there, you know, those pleasant surprises we weren't necessarily expecting but thought were great for it. Uh, Those coaches that we thought might have been an overreach and uh, who we might have plucked out and replaced them with. Uh, But now it's time to put up or shut up, John. Let's, uh, Let's walk our way down through our own personal top fives. Let's go backwards five to one. Uh, I, I think would probably be the best way to do this, and we'll just bounce five, five, four, four, three, three. So, give it to me. What's your number five on your list? Uh, I went with Chris Peterson. That's who I went with for number five. Um, I I love coaches who were able to transcend leagues that they were playing in and and whatnot. So I love the fact that Peterson was able to win as much as he did at Boise State, you know, winning four WAC championships and a Mountain West championship, leading Boise State near the top of the mountain, um, getting them to be, you know, what we think of as the modern-day Boise State program, and then moving on to the to the Pac-12 with Washington, taking Washington to two Pac-12 championships and a playoff berth. So I, you know, remains to be seen whether Chris Peterson's actually done coaching after technically retiring at the end of this season and seeding way for Jimmy Lake to take over in Seattle. But I, I think he's still probably one of the more underrated coaches that I've ever seen in college football from what he was able to do at a program like Boise State, really building them into the power that they are now and have currently been able to stay at or near and then being able to take over a Washington program that, wasn't what we've seen in recent years. When he got to Seattle and took over the Huskies, Washington was a perennial, you know, six and six, seven and five team for many years in a row, just fighting and clawing for bowl eligibility. And he immediately took them near the top of the Pac-12 and was able to win a couple conference titles and get them even into 
into the college football playoffs. That's why I went with number five. I, I think it's a great number five. He's certainly on my top five, but at number five, I, another overreach, and I wanted to save this for here, I thought Bo Schembechler was high at number one, personally. I really did. You know, he's a coach who had a storied career. Don't get me wrong, you know. He had the top, he, he finished second in 1985 when Michigan went 10-1-1, won the Fiesta Bowl. The thing is, is he was playing in the Fiesta Bowl, though, because, you know, he was second in the Big Ten. He didn't even win his conference that year. So it's really hard to, to you know, shed tears over this. The only time he had an unbeaten season was his fifth year as a coach in Ann Arbor in 1973, when he went 10-0-1, 7-0-1 uh, in conference play with that tie. Uh, you will be, uh, you know, shocked to hear, came against the number one ranked Ohio State team, who, uh, you know, ends up holding... Uh, I think ends up finishing number two that season, if I'm not mistaken, because they lost the, or who did they lose it to? Anyway, I'm not going to walk down that rabbit hole, but what I think is, you know, in terms of Bo Schembechler, he has this one undefeat or unbeaten season, uh, doesn't, never has a perfect season there in Ann Arbor. And in the latter half of his career, you know, from 19. You know, basically from 1976 onward, every time he won the Big Ten, and he won the Big Ten eight out of, what is it, eight out of 14, eight out of 15 years. So, obviously, incredible, right? But out of those eight, in those eight Big Ten titles, they always had at least two losses. So, you know, it, it's one of those where I think he's... Certainly got a top five argument. Don't get me wrong. I'm arguing for Bo Schembechler at top five. I'm not taking a dump on his career by any means here. But I think there are, you know, coaches ahead of him who had more undefeated seasons, more legitimate claims to national titles than he ultimately did over the course of his career. So I'd put him at number five. So all you Michigan fans out there, get ready to hate me. You know, I, I, I'm okay with that. I understand. Uh, but I, I, I think that's a fair placement for him. You know, I, it's going to be the first time I've ever really taken up for Michigan fans. They're going to be shocked listening to the podcast that I would actually have their back here. But I disagree, and we'll get into why and stuff later on down the list, because he's in my top five, but he's higher than five, so... I'll get more into that when we get further up the list. But we got some disagreements, so that's good. That's rare. I think that's totally fair, yeah. You know, this isn't like we're betting right now, everybody. So you might not have to, to deal with our, our odds making for a long time. So, you know, enjoy this now. We'll have some disagreement. Uh, so number four, John, who do you have at number four? Yeah, number four... Um... I went with uh, Frank Beamer, uh, number four. He, you know, obviously led Virginia Tech very close to a national title when Michael Vick was in Blacksburg. They played uh, Florida State for a national title. And, you know, 
got ran over by that Seminoles team in that game, which, you know, most teams did that season, so it's hard to really blame them or anything for that. But, you know, Beamer won, whether it was in the Big East or whether it was in the ACC, you know, he won three Big East titles, four ACC titles, and led Virginia Tech to, to seven consensus top ten seasons. And he did it for a long time. And, and, and he took over a program that wasn't nearly at the heights that we think of the Hokies right now when he got there, you know, jumping from, from Murray state um, in the Ohio Valley conference to getting the Virginia tech job and, you know, a slow go getting the Hokies to where they are. Now we talk about how quickly programs and fans turn on coaches. Uh, I don't know that Beamer would have probably survived in Blacksburg after the first few seasons he had there, because you're talking about it took until um, year six, for the Hokies to even go to a bowl game under under Beamer in 1993, finally making a bowl. But once he got things rolling there, they became a really, um, really strong program and jumped into being one of the more consistent programs in college football. And his last few years is probably what keeps him from being even higher on the list because the Hokies kind of slipped back towards more mediocre playing his last few seasons there. And, you know, they haven't really gotten above that. Uh, since he's been gone, either, to be fair to Beamer as a whole. But I think his ability to elevate that program to, you know, invent an entire style of football, right? Like Beamer ball is a thing that people still talk about today when you talk about teams who do really well on special teams and who make plays on that facet of the game that can swing things in their favor. Um, so I think his his lasting legacy of college in college football and the mark he left and his ability to elevate that program to what we see now has to, to me, puts him in the top five. Damn it, now we have agreement, John, because that's exactly where I had Frank Beamer. Um, you know, he's a coach that's similar to Schimbeckler in, in my mind in that regard, in that, you know, he did have the one undefeated season heading into the BCS game in 1999. So I would, I, that's what had me sort of tip it slightly higher, but you know, in that back half of his career, he won four ACC titles. Once they move over three in the big East, four in the ACC and also went and played in two more games. So he won, you know, six ACC division titles in 12 years. So right around that winning half of your total season, winning something in half of, you know, your seasons as a coach, kind of like what we saw with Shem Beckler. I think the fact that he did it in the era that he did heading into that BCS when you get matched up one to two um, was what impressed me and had me put him slightly higher above Shem Beckler. But, you know, people are already hating me in Ann Arbor, so they might as well hate me in Blacksburg as well for that being my justification or whatnot. So, um, you know, I think he, you know, he's one I certainly, you could rank him in the top three. But I think what really hurts is, you know, as we mentioned that back half, once they moved to the Atlantic Coast Conference, they only had one season where they, you know lost two or fewer games and that was their 11 and two season in 05 even the three or the four times that they won the ACC they had three or more losses 
So just like I was saying with Shem Beckler in regard to, you know, the back half of his Big Ten coaching career, I think it's the same team thing with Beamer that keeps him from being higher. No, yeah, I mean, I think that's totally fair. Um, it's He certainly, you know, had a long run of success, but it, it just speaks to how difficult to Zach it is to to win a national championship in college football, that you have these guys who have this prolonged period of winning so many games and can't quite get over the hump. Totally. It, it, it's exactly it. And it, it just shows how you can be one of the best head coaches in college football history, and it's still hard to get over that hump. So the guys who do it multiple times, it's all the more ridiculous, and it shows that it's, on one hand, it, it does require a great coach, but it also requires a lot of luck on your side and a lot of chips to fall in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, John, do we have more agreement or are we disagreeing with number three? Who you got? Well, number, number three for me was my the biggest snub I thought on uh, Dante's list was not including Bill Snyder. Uh, so that's why I went with, with number three. I think Snyder's got an argument for potentially even higher than that from where what he was able to do at Kansas State in two different stints with the Wildcats, totally building up a historically downtrodden program, one that historically just has not won much outside of Bill Snyder being the coach there. And I think their prospects currently with Chris Kleeman there are pretty good. I think that was as good of a hire as we've seen in the last few years in college football bring him in, but they wouldn't have even had a shot at a coach like that if it wasn't for what Bill Slatter was able to do as a little apple. Um, you know, he led in his first tenure at Kansas State, led them toward the top of the Big 8 and then the Big 12 Conference, um, you know, winning a, a Big 12 Conference title. One of the biggest upsets in conference championship game history in 2003, leading that Wildcats team over Oklahoma in the Big 12 title game with Darren Sproles running crazy over the Sooners in that title game. And then, you know, retiring for four years, Kansas State drops back down. He gets back and pretty instantly leads them right back toward the, the tippy top of college football. Um, you know, in 2012, finishing in the regular season, I believe they're in the top five, end up losing the Fiesta Bowl that year, finishing outside the top ten. But, you know, they were in the conversation for even a, a spot in the in the national title game for much of that season. So I love what Snyder was able to do there, um, how much success he was able to have at a program that hasn't had a lot of success outside. He only won two Big 12 titles, but I think those two Big 12 titles mean a lot considering, you know, the odds he had to overcome to get there. And then led also led Kansas State to six consensus top 10 finishes over his career. And I think the thing that sticks out to me the most is he was able to do it in two different spots. You know, he was able to lead Kansas State to as much success as he was in, their, in his first step. He was able to walk away from the game, come back to it with as different as the game was four years after he had left it, and then got Kansas State right back um, from being, you know, a cellar dweller in the conference right back towards the top. Yeah, I think I, – I, I think – Snyder certainly has an argument. I personally had him right outside at number six when I was flipping and flopping everything around. 
the thing to keep in mind about all these lists is that they're very subjective, and it's what do you value, what do you prize when you're ranking these these coaches. Um, but I think in terms of looking at his, uh, just that amount of longevity, that ability to completely build a program from the ground up, is really relevant to consider in this case. So yeah, I... I well, I hate to be the guy that says I'd put him at number six. Um, I put him at number six, and, and if you know, if they would have won that '99 championship game, he would have had his chance at a national title, and we might be talking about Bill Snyder even more differently. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest what if that had me think, you know, really struggling whether or not to put him in my top five but I'm glad you did so that we got to talk about him because he certainly merits a lot of conversation in this discussion but you know I, I said I went a different way with my number three and I did um I'd have to say Ron Meyer. You know, I mentioned him earlier. He had only six years at SMU. And it's interesting because when you look at his actual career, he had the one season where they finished 10-1 and one in 1981 before he uh, was not there to coach the team. Or no, they were not eligible to play in a bowl game is what happened. Sorry. Uh, that was the year where it, it was the first set of sanctions against SMU. And so uh, the game the game against... Oop, you okay? Yeah. Oh, I just... There was a little rumble in the sound. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. So, you know, um, that was the year where, you know, 1981, they finished number... Or they finished fifth. And that's largely because they weren't able to play in a bowl game. But, uh, you know, looking back, the um, the National Championship Foundation named them their champion that season. Uh, you look at the year before, that team was the one that BYU pulled off their miracle in the Holiday Bowl against them. Uh but SMU was an incredible team back then, and I think if Ron Meyer stays in Dallas for a couple more seasons rather than going to the New England Patriots, he has a national title before SMU completely gets, you know, canned down to the death penalty. So, Yeah, I, I love that you brought Ron Meyer up. I, he's not on my list personally. as a guy that I really wasn't even thinking about. In this, so I, I really appreciate that, that that you brought that brought that you brought him up, and and that, especially that era of SMU football that was just so so great, regardless of you know what all was going on extracurricularly there. But I mean, I think they weren't probably necessarily doing anything that other teams weren't doing as well. They just weren't as good as at hiding it as everyone else. Exactly. You know, when you you send out the check in SMU letterhead with SMU stationery, you're not a, a mastermind. We'll just put it that way. That or you're just incredibly bold. 
you got cojones. Well, yeah, that's the way to put it. You, you got real stones. <laughs> All right, we are quickly winding this down to our top few. Uh, who you got for two, John? I went with Gary Patterson for number two, and I think he's a guy who could... You know, maybe he won't end up being on this list at all one day because maybe he does eventually lead TCU to a national title. He's certainly come very close to it um, in the past. You look at that 2010 TCU team, that's probably the closest we got to a real non-automatic qualifier playing for a national championship. If either Oregon or Auburn um, would have slipped up during that season, TCU was the, the team that would have stepped in and I think would have had a legitimate shot against either one of those programs in a national title game, particularly when you look at what happened in that Rose Bowl against Wisconsin when they were able to beat the Badgers and, and win in Pasadena. I think they would have had a, a real shot with a, you know, a ridiculously talented defense and Andy Dalton at quarterback and just a really good TCU team. But it's just the run of success that Patterson has been able to have at TCU you know, there's been a maybe a lull the last couple of years in Fort Worth, but I, I don't think anyone expected the Horned Frogs to immediately transition to the Big 12 and have as much success as they've been able to have in that conference. You know, it, it's, it basically feels like they've always been there because they've been so good right away. I mean, Patterson, like I said earlier, you know, he's won six conference titles in his career, one time in the Conference USA TCU then moved to the Mountain West. He won four Mountain West titles there. And he's got a Big 12 title under his belt at TCU as well. The The Horn Frogs have won or finished um, seven times so, yeah. in the top. What? Oh, I was going to say, that's actually seven conference titles, not six. So, you know, even better in his favor. It's one Conference USA, four Mountain West, one Big 12, right? And uh, won Western Athletic Conference in 2000. Oh, excuse me. You're right. I, I totally he, he was the. You're it, totally right. And to be fair, he was the interim coach of that team when Dennis uh, Franchione stepped down to take the Texas A&M job. And he lost, the, right. he lost the Mobile Alabama Bowl. So he was 0-1 that season, but he was still technically one of the coaches on the the conference championship team, so. Right, right. You know, also seven consensus top ten finishes at TCU four times when they were in the Mountain West, which I think is even more impressive to lead a Mountain West school to four top ten finishes. And then the number two finish in 2010, a team that, you know, if we're talking about we had the playoff in 2010, I don't think it would have shocked either of us if TCU would have been the last team standing that season as the national champion. So, um, I to me, just the level of success he's been able to have in every conference he's taken TCU to and from, he's been able to just do so much. And, and you know, you talked about it a while ago, too, that he might not be on this list eventually because he ends up getting that national title one day at TCU. I don't think it would be a surprise to anyone. No, certainly. And... Okay, so maybe we're just agreeing on even numbers right here, John, because Patterson was my number two as well. And I think it really comes down to, as you mentioned, he had three legitimate gripes about not getting into a, a, a championship opportunity. You know, we mentioned 09, where they were behind uh, 
you know, they were behind uh, Cincinnati in, in the rankings there. And, uh, you know, as you said, Texas slip, uh, slips up. Uh, Cincinnati might have had a shot. But voters might just as easily have decided to put TCU ahead of them to the point where um, I can't remember what the computers said. But if I'm not mistaken, most of the computers had TCU more highly ranked. Uh, so... You know, that was one of those situations where they would have been in a playoff in 09. They would have been in a playoff in 2010. And frankly, you know, as you mentioned, they had the, uh, you know, they were close that year as well. You know, they were number three going into that. So, um, and then, you know, 2014 happens. You know, that team, you know, that Trevon Boykin-led team, uh, you know, they have their one loss against Baylor, but they're ranked number five, you know, and or number six. They were one of the last two teams out. I know they had Baylor and TCU five six or six five, however it was. But then we saw what they did in the Peach Bowl to Ole Miss. They came out pissed off and ready to show that they were snubbed, and they did it. You know, I think you look at that team, they finished number three in both polls. So they had the they had the wheels to hang with anybody in the country that year. So as a coach who legitimately had three different teams that could lay strong claims to, you know, being unfairly kept out of a, a championship opportunity, it, he's definitely got to be right up there at the top of the list, so... We're we're in agreement on this one. So, so let's you know wrap it up. Who do we disagree on for number one, John? I all right. Our biggest disagreement on this list is Bo Schembechler. That's who I actually I agreed with Dante that the list starts with Schembechler at the top. And you know I I think you brought up some really valid points. To be fair, when you were talking about it, but also when you look at just the body of work, you're looking at a guy who coached in Michigan for twenty seasons. And 15 of those seasons, Michigan finished consensusly in the top 10 in both the AP and the coaches' poll. So that longevity, I think, puts him, to me, a little bit ahead of everyone else on this list because he was able to do it for so long. And I I think maybe the biggest gripe of Shen Beckler in his career is the fact that he couldn't get it done on the biggest of stages. Michigan, there's not a really good excuse for why he didn't win a national title at Michigan considering the 15 top 10 um, finishes, the 13 Big Ten championships he won in Ann Arbor. How does that not translate to a national title? When you look at it and going 2-8 and eight in Rose Bowls is the biggest reason why. You know, having that many opportunities to potentially sway the pollsters in your direction and then you fall flat on the big stage and you get that reputation that you can't win the big one at some point. And, you know, also... He, you know, had the the difficult time of, of being a part of the Big Ten during a period of time where they didn't send that many team many teams to bowl games every year. They had stricter academic policies than a lot of conferences did to where they didn't get uh, they didn't send the same teams to bowl games every year as not to disrupt academic progress. Um, you know, seventy two, seventy three, and seventy four, Michigan won the Big Ten each one of those seasons that play in a single bowl game. And maybe if they would have played in a bowl game those seasons, maybe they do enough to impress the pollsters and get a national title out of it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, his his failure 
in the Rose Bowls, especially the two and eight record in those ten Rose Bowls, Rose Bowls that he played in, I think is a big demerit. But when you're looking at, to me, when you're looking at who's probably got the best body of work overall um, for a guy who didn't win a title, I think the list starts with Shen Beckler, and that's and that's from coming from someone who doesn't typically uh, do much to defend the Wolverines. <laughs> Uh, totally, and you know, like I said, Shim Beckler is a guy who has you, you can you can certainly argue for him there, but just to to throw more sand on this fire because you know that's the way I'm gonna be, or I guess you know I don't know I'm I'm either dousing the fire of you know fanaticism for Shim Beckler or you know throwing gasoline on this fire of of controversy of me saying he's not the best ever um cuz it it seems like it it sounds like it's fairly consensus but you know i you mentioned 72 through 74 when the big 10 still wasn't sending teams to any games other than the rose bowl and that's fair i think that you've got a legitimate thing to argue for that but at the same time, the reason that Michigan didn't go to bowl games any of those years was the fact that they played against Ohio State in highly ranked games at the end of their regular season and went 0-2-1 in those three years. And Ohio State claimed that that opportunity each time. You know, um, in 72, uh, Michigan was ranked third. And they played a top 10 Ohio State team at the Horseshoe and lost 14-11. Ohio State goes to the Rose Bowl as Big Ten co-champion. Because they shared the Big Ten title each of these three years with the the Buckeyes. Um, And each time either lost or tied them. So, you know, that second time uh, they play Ohio State. Ohio State's ranked number one in the country in 73 Michigan's fourth, and they tie 10-10. Again, you know, um, that's one where Ohio State got the nod, and it it, it came down to where they were ranked in the polls. Um, Third time, so 1974, they're ranked second in the country. All they need is a win, uh, you know, and then they go on to play in the Rose Bowl. They're probably national champions, you know. They had a team that could have easily hung just as much with a top five USC team. Uh, Ohio State ended up losing to the Trojans 18-17 in that Rose Bowl. But, you know, it's very possible, as we mentioned, the transitive property doesn't necessarily correlate in college football. And Michigan might have been able to exploit a different advantage in the game that works to their favor there. And vaults up to number one that year. So it could have happened... But then they went and lost 12-10 in Columbus and handed it over to the Buckeyes yet again and gave them the opportunity to play the Trojans for the national title. So I think ultimately, you know, that was that was what had me uh, holding back on Bo a bit. And, you know, we, we kind of flip-flopped our 5-1 and one because this this is probably just the group of five guy talking in me but Chris Peterson is it you know i i think he's the best coach that has ne- never won a national title current or former 
in the modern era. And I think that's the other thing for me, is it really comes down to where do you classify the modern era? Because I think Bo Schembechler's best seasons happen before, you know, really the 80s when you start to see television spectacle around college football become even bigger and these teams, you know, as you mentioned, bowl games proliferate more to the point where the Big Ten you know, can't refuse to send their teams to games like the Orange Bowl or the Fiesta Bowl. And um, so, yeah, that w- that's really my scale. But but Chris Peterson, 92-12 and 12 at a, a whack-slash-Mountain West school in Boise State that, like TCU during Gary Pat, you know, in, in the mentions of Gary Patterson had some legitimate gripes to not getting anywhere near consideration for, you know, championship discussion. Obviously in 06, when they first break through in his first season there and cap it with that giant win against Oklahoma, they're too much of an unknown, too much of an underdog to really have that chance to vault up, you know, beyond the top five where they finished in the AP poll after that win. Um... But, you know, 08, they go 12-0 and 0 in the regular season. 09, they go 13-0 and 0 in the regular season. 2010, they go 11-1 and 1 with their only loss coming against a top 15 Nevada team led by Colin Kaepernick, and they lose in overtime because they can't kick a field goal. You know, Kyle Brotsman, who's the hero in the Fiesta Bowl the year before, can't hit a field goal in overtime, and... And that, you know, becomes the difference there. Um, What's that like? Yeah, exactly. To go from being the hero of the Fiesta Bowl to the goat of a game in Reno. Uh, you know, I guess there are worse fates in life than to be the hero and the goat. Because at least you got that hero status once. But, you know, he has those chances. And really that four-year run there where you know, under Kellen Moore's leadership on the offense where they go 50-3 and three and never finish higher than fourth. I, I think that span is one of the most underappreciated in college football history. I, I You know, as much as we talk about Chris Peterson's greatness and Boise State's greatness, it always gets framed in as a Cinderella story. And that's, like, just sheer dominance on, on any level. The fact is, is, you know, they go 3-1 and one in bowl games over that span. So one of their losses is in a bowl game. You know, their only other two come in, in conference matchups, as I mentioned, the one against Nevada. And then in 2011, the only reason that they're not going to a major bowl game is because TCU beats them for the the conference title in their first season moving to the Mountain West. Yeah, and these are Boise State teams, too, that were taking on all comers and consistently <laughs> beating all comers. You know, the we saw them beat the likes of Oregon going across the country and playing Georgia and Atlanta and beating Georgia, uh, which was probably the biggest win of that era for Chris Peterson. I, you know, I, I can totally appreciate having Chris Peterson number one. I think the longevity thing is the only thing that kept him shy of that mark for me or not further up the list. If 
you know, his preemptive retirement this year, if we could have gotten another five to ten years of Peterson on the sideline, I think it could have ended up being inarguable that he was the best coach to never win a title if he didn't eventually lead either the Huskies or another program to a championship, which he certainly had the the possibility of doing. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's fascinating, too, when we look at these lists, Zach, to think about how different these lists would be if the college football playoff had been around for guys like Peterson and Gary Patterson back when TCU was in the Mountain West. Um, you know, what could have happened in those areas? We could be talking about neither of these coaches right now because maybe they shock the world and, and win the college football playoff in those seasons and have a national title under their belt. Or even a guy like Bo Schimbeckler in those right. years between 1972 and 1974 where they, you know, they enter the postseason as a top four team, undoubtedly, you know, where, you know, what did I say? Going into the Ohio State game, they're ranked number three, number four, number two across those three seasons. So, you know, it's kind of like that same discussion we had in 06 where it was the game of the century between the... Uh, the Wolverines and the Buckeyes, you know, where they could have very easily had a rematch. And uh, we could have very easily seen Michigan get a top four spot in any of those years if the playoff existed way back in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's a detriment for those guys that they didn't get that opportunity. And, you know... At least we have it now. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that we could very well be saying this exact same thing about coaches coaching right now whenever this playoff inevitably expands to 8 or 16. You know, that'll give Gary Patterson even more of an argument. Like, I would have definitely gotten in in these years and even more of them, you know? So... But that's the fun of these thought experiments is we can just project and project backward and, and retroactively and we none of us actually have a damn clue what would have happened, but it sure is fun to think about it, isn't it? It's fun to think about anything right now that doesn't pertain to the current state of events in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's certainly been... I, I just realized we've been rambling for more than a half hour on just our top five here for this last segment. So, you know, for all of you out there, stay safe, um, stay isolated. I know it sucks, um, especially with no sports on besides the Ocho and, uh, you know, recordings of, you know, college football games from more than a decade ago, um, which, believe me, I'm not going to cry about kicking back and watching a random game from 09 or whatnot, but... At the same time, you know, live sports is always the most fun because you don't know what's what's coming at you already. Um, so, you know, I hope this provided an, an hour's worth of distraction or so for you, something to, to sort of chew on and think about how you might rank these folks yourselves moving forward. Or, you know, like our topic last week, even sort of the gallows humor, what coach would you most want to be quarantined with? And as we, you know, move further into this situation, that's one you might actually be thinking about even more. What, you know, 
what favorite player might you most want to have to be in seclusion with. So hang in there. We will get out to the other side, but it really requires us, you know, playing our best game here and uh, doing everything that's, that's really recommended and best practices to get to that other side and, and, and flatten this curve to the point until we get the better information and, and, you know, possible vaccines in the way. So, John, stay safe on your end. Appreciate it, man. You do the same, you know. As Americans, we've been trained for years on how to sit on the couch and do nothing, and now it's time to to take that training and put it into practice. It's game time, everybody.